very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to everything we have to offer, including tonight's full interview, just go to our website and click on subscribe. You'll get your login immediately. Don't wait get the truth now. And to upgrade your life and reach your full potential, listen to Sanitas. Go to sanitasradio.com and take a listen. I guarantee that your life will not be the same. And to get in touch with me, when I'll be a guest on this radio program, have suggestions or feedback, I always love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website. And don't forget, like us on Facebook. For most people, the suggestion that the moon could be artificial is about as sensible as saying that it is made of green cheese. So here's the challenge from tonight's guest. Put aside your natural incredulity and listen with an open mind. Check out the evidence, then ask yourself, who built the moon? Could it be that the moon is artificial? Could it even be hollow? Does the moon really exist through some happy accident of collision in a random game of space skittles? Or is it a blueprint? And if so, who was the architect? The conclusions are astounding, and tonight's special guest is already a veteran of this program. His name is Alan Butler, a qualified engineer, but always fascinated with history, and made himself into something of an expert in astrology and astronomy. He has published four successful books on the Knights Templar and the Grey Legend. He is also a published playwright and a very successful radio dramatist. He is the co-author of the best-selling Civilization One, and was recently featured on this radio program with Janet Walter, too, discussing the secret origins of America. And directly from Bidlington, England, I would like to welcome Alan Butler. Hello, Alan, and welcome back. I'm Alan. It's nice to be back with you again. Always, always a pleasure. And traditionally, Alan, we don't like to repeat guests unless it's been a few months from their last appearance, but I found out you had co-written a book about the moon and it had to strike while the iron was hot. So I'm glad you you agreed to be back. Before we begin, when and why did you start questioning the nature of our moon? That's a really interesting question and perhaps the most interesting one of all because it came about almost entirely by accident. The man with whom I wrote Who Built the Moon, Christopher Knight and I, originally worked together on a book called Civilization One, which dealt with something completely different. What we were looking at was the 
very early creation of um, a mathematical and geometrical system which had been used in the construction of all the uh, major megalithic monuments in Western Europe. And uh, I'm talking about monuments like Stonehenge, which your listeners will have heard of. Um, There are many, many hundreds, if not thousands, such monuments. And they were all built using the same units of measurement. And Chris and I eventually discovered that these measurements were part of an all-encompassing measuring system, which was based upon both the size and the mass of the Earth. This surprised us greatly, as you can imagine. Um, But the problem with interviews such as this for me is that the the work is so big and so broad. But let's suffice it to say for tonight's questions that we discovered this ancient measuring system. Um, And our great surprise came as we were finishing the book Civilization I when we began to realise that this measuring system which we had uh, thought was devised just for the Earth, worked just as well on both the Moon and the Sun. This really, really shocked us. And so we thought, after we'd finished and published Civilization One, that we should take a look at this situation more closely. Um, and the more we looked, the more we found. And it was really completely by accident that we started to look at the Moon. Believe me... Had anybody said to me uh, a few years ago, oh, we think the moon's artificial, um, I would have thought they'd lost the plot. Oh, same with me. Years ago, the same thing with me. But the more I looked, and even as a child, I questioned certain things. We only see the same face. When there's an eclipse, we see the same size. And we'll discuss and dissect all those intriguing aspects later. But one aspect of your investigation that I really liked Right at the beginning of the book, you say, quote, God may well exist, and so too might aliens from all we, for all we know. But this book will only cons- concern itself with hard scientific facts, and unlike so many of those trapped in the politically correct world of academia, our published findings will not be constrained by the demands of current convention. The information we put forward here is clear, testable, and we believe irrefutable, unquote. So how certain were you two that the moon is artificial? We we were absolutely certain, and it was really all down to the mathematics of the situation. There are many other reasons for thinking the moon is artificial, and you've just quoted some of them. Um, what we were looking for, what we thought we'd seen, was a thinking mind uh, behind the creation of the moon, albeit 4.6 billion years ago, uh, and we recognised that this thinking mind had not only created the moon to do all the things it does for the Earth, which no doubt we'll mention as time goes on, but had also been convinced that at some stage in the future they would be sentient creatures on the Earth who they wanted to tell what they'd done. So they put a lot of messages into the moon. I was going to say then coded messages, but they're not much of a code because they're so easy to see. Uh, And it really was this comprehension. When we started to see the moon as a machine, rather than just a random uh, object made by nature, that it started to become obvious to us that there was a thinking mind behind it. Do you think there was a time in our past, perhaps a distant past, when our moon was not present? 
Yes, I do, Mel, but I don't think that that time was very long. Um, it seems to me that um, the time scale between the creation of the Earth and the creation of the Moon was probably not much more than a few million years, uh, which sounds an awful long time when you think of the lifetime of a human being. But considering that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, it's not a long time. Um, maybe a few million years before the Moon came into existence. Um, and until that point in time, the Earth was just uh, a semi-molten rock spinning crazily in space, turning on its own axis probably every two hours and never likely to support life of any kind. It really was the introduction of the moon into the system that started to slow the Earth and eventually made it what it is today. That was my next next question. How would life be different today? If there was no think, moon, would there be even be life? I think it's very, very unlikely. One of the major problems with the Earth is it's a very unstable planet. Um, as most people know, the Earth has a molten core. Many planets do, but... The Earth is still in its reasonably early stages of evolution. Um, the surface of the Earth upon which we live is a really, really thin crust overlying a planet which is very reactive. And one of the major problems with the Earth is that it, it tends to wobble a great deal because it's so unstable inside. And it's the wobbling which probably would have meant that no life could ever have developed because it's almost certain that every so often the Earth would have turned over on its own axis, and this would have been cataclysmic for life. Uh, the other reason why I don't think there would be any uh, life on the Earth is because the Earth is in a position relative to the Sun, which um, scientists would call uh, a Goldilocks position. In other words, it's one of the few places in the solar system where water can exist in all its three forms, as um, as gas, as liquid, and as a solid, of course, which is ice. But it could never do so without the moon. And the reason for that is, if even if the Earth uh, kept a level state relative to its orbit around the sun, we would have got a situation where certain parts of the Earth would be superheated by the sun, whereas other parts of the Earth would be really really cold all the time and when we say hot um, those central parts would have become so hot that they could have melted lead like can happen for example on the planets Mercury and Venus but the presence of the moon in the specific orbit that it holds has turned the earth gradually so that it has uh, an inclination it's not exactly straight up and down north south relative to the sun it stands at a slight angle to the sun and that is what makes seasons happen. So the presence of the moon allows the surface of the earth to get an even warming from the sun all through the year by way of the seasons. And that is what allows water to exist in all its three states. Now, if we imagine that the moon had not been there, then no matter how you write the story, the earth could not have had the kind of even warming it's getting from the sun some parts would have been fiercely hot, some parts would have been fiercely cold, and the chances for life in that environment would not have been good. Is this mostly because of the tides? As the moon approaches, you see the, 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 the water being pushed, and that's why we have the tides around the world. And without the moon, 
water essentially in the oasis will be completely stagnant? Yes, assuming that water had ever had chance to exist in its liquid form. And for the reasons I mentioned a moment ago, that's probably fairly unlikely. But even had the water existed, it would have stayed still. And that's an interesting point in itself, Mel, because had the water not moved about or sloshed about, as Chris and I used to say, then the chances of life ever being transferred from the oceans onto dry land are also uh, pretty unlikely. Um, we know when the moon was created, when the moon was made, that it was very much closer to the Earth than it is now. It's gradually moved away from the Earth. And so the tides that it originally generated would have been colossal. This meant that, um, that there were huge river valleys. There were places where uh, the ocean was uh, crashing inland twice a day. Um, and it was stirring everything up. And it's this stirring up, it's this wonderful porridge in the early oceans um, that allowed life to develop because nutrients were constantly being redistributed, which is something that can't happen on other planets. Since you mentioned the Earth core, well, uh, looking at the depiction of the Earth layers in your book, it brings me back to science books when I was younger, reading in school and so on. And we're told there's a hot, fiery, fiery inner core of molten iron and at the center of our planet. But how do we know this how do we know this is actually true if the Russians who hold the, the record while looking for oil used the Kola Superdeep borehole and they were only able to drill about eight miles? How do we know what is beyond those eight miles? I think we know because of another phenomena that um, has been created by the moon, which we call plate tectonics. If we were to look at our companion planets, in particular um, Mars and Venus, and maybe Mercury to a certain extent, we see that they have generally solid surfaces. Um, Mars, for example, has uh, one giant volcano, which doesn't seem to have erupted for a great time. But the surface of the Earth is very different. It appears in chunks, and we call those plates. And they move about on the underlying liquid um, core of the Earth, um, in, in a nature which we've come to call plate tectonics. Um, the, the continents upon which we live uh, are carried on top of these plates. But it would seem to be the case that the reason that those plates move about is because the surface of the Earth has never had the chance to settle down and solidify in the way that of other planets have. Um, and because of that, we get a lot of volcanic activity happening uh, on various parts of the Earth's surface. Now, these volcanoes bring up material from way down inside the Earth. Um, they bring up um, iron in particular. I mean, iron is one of the most abundant substances on the Earth, and we can find it uh, as a result of volcanic activity, along with many other minerals. And again, this is one of the things that has allowed life to develop on Earth, there is a constant recycling of, of minerals which allows life to feed, um, whereas if you look at a, what is more or less a barren planet, as far as we know, uh, like Venus or like uh, Mars, this kind of activity is not going on all the time. So if there is any life on those planets, 
it's going to be at a very low level. It's not going to have the activity that we have. But as for how we know what the centre of the Earth looks like, it's because of all the volcanic activity, which doesn't go on in the same way on the other planets. You mentioned Mars, our neighbouring planet. Why do you think plate tectonics have either never started or else never have been maintained on Mars? I think the, the main reason for that is that although Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, Mars's moons are absolutely tiny in comparison with the size of the planet, whereas our moon is huge in comparison with the planet. Um, it's not all that massive in terms of its mass, but it is a huge body, and it still has a tremendous effect on the Earth every time it goes over. You mentioned a little while ago, Mel, the tides of the ocean, which in some parts of the world are absolutely massive, and the more so at certain times of the moon's passage, full moon and new moon, we tend to get very high high tides, very low low tides. Now, it does seem that there was once water on the surface of Mars, but Mars suffered from not having the even warming which the Earth has, and so it's quite likely that the, um, the planet never developed a, a sufficiently strong atmosphere, uh, and the water either burned off or simply blew off into space, or it may be underground. And if it is underground, as scientists think it probably is, then maybe there will be some primitive life there. But it could never be like the life we have on Earth because there isn't the interaction going on between the internal goodies that exist inside Mars and what is going on in the surface. And most of the surface of Mars is like um, like the Atacama Desert, for example, on the Earth. You mentioned Phobos and Demos. I remember the 1988 or 89 incident. Do you remember that, the Phobos incident with the Russian probe? Uh, not offhand, Mal. Remind me. Well, the two two satellite probes were sent. One was lost, I believe, a few days after it launched. But the second uh, Phobos arrived to the to the actual uh, rotation of Mars, and it as it's approaching uh, Phobos, something happened. They lost communication immediately. But before that, they were able to send some imagery, and uh, they haven't apparently showed it to the world. But it's uh, apparently very very. Interesting what happened, a very mysterious situation that happened there. I don't recall having read about that, Mel, but I shall look that up first thing tomorrow. That's fine. And uh, your tape, you mentioned the Russians and the digging and, and the core. How do we know that this core is not actually just a few miles under us, and that's where the, the molten lava is coming from, from? And that leads me to the next question. You're taking oil, and I know this might be unrelated to what we're discussing, Oil, limited resource or abiotic, in your opinion? I think this is a really fascinating question. Um, I'm definitely on the fence as far as this one's concerned, Mel. There, there seems to be quite conclusive proof that oil is a, a biological product and that it's the product of millions of years of life living and dying. On the other hand, there are quite a few scientists in the world now who would be willing to bet that it doesn't matter how much oil we take, it always will be replaced. So it may not be a biological process. It may be more a chemical process. I think the jury is still out at the moment, but it's certainly being looked at more seriously than it used to be. I believe, again, these Russians, uh, some Russian ex uh, scientists proved 
by some conclusive experiments that it's actually. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.